Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm interviewing Walt Odets. He's a clinical psychologist in private practice who's worked with and written about the psychological, developmental, and social lives of gay men for more than three decades. His seminal book, In the Shadow of the Epidemic, Being HIV Negative in the Age of AIDS, was selected by the New York Times as one of the notable books of the year. The Advocate magazine reported that In the Shadow of the Epidemic was the number one best-selling book among gay men that fall. The following year, Out Magazine named Odette's one of the 100 most impressive, influential, and controversial gay men and lesbians of 1996. Odette's new book is Out of the Shadows, Reimagining Gay Men's Lives, which examines the hopes and new possibilities for gay men today. He's the son of playwright Clifford Odets and the and the stage actress Betty Grayson and lives in Berkeley, California, right around the corner from me. Welcome, Walt. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. I I really, really enjoyed, if that's the word, got so much out of your book. Um, you know, even that even though we're both members of a larger community together, um, I, f- I feel as if I really got a deep dive into the impact of certain experiences that I've gone through only next door, uh, the AIDS epidemic and everything that's come after that. So I, I really feel uh, very, very informed in a way I wasn't before. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And the other thing is that... Uh, you you do the kind of um, the kind of explanatory writing that I like, which is that you intersperse a lot of story, yours and other people's, throughout the book. And I had the sense that um, the the book was kind of bookended with your own story, and so I appreciate you being vulnerable with that as well. Yeah, that, that, I mean, there was an obvious reason for that, but I, I think of it as bookending, too. I, I open the introduction with the discussion of a personal relationship and, and very important loss. And uh, the closing chapter is about a lifelong relationship and, and the loss of that actually rather recently. And I'm asking in, in, in most of the book, uh, and, as you probably know at this point, the book is told through the stories of 24 men and uh, where each kind of provides uh, something about a particular issue. And I'm asking men to uh, look into their feelings and I, and I wouldn't feel right about not expressing my own feelings. So in some sense, the book ending, as, as you described it, um, is, is a way of making... Uh, emotion acceptable, the emotion and the examination of emotional uh, 
acceptable to people. There is, uh, on, on the kinds of issues that we're talking about here, which have to do with loss and stigmatization and so on, there's a fantastic amount of denial among people. And, uh, and, and I wanted to both reveal my vulnerabilities as, as, as well as my emotional responses you know, I really, uh, it, it really generated some thought for me about, um, I, I sometimes feel as if, especially out in public, uh, you know, my, my friends in the LGBTQ community don't want to divulge uh, any difficulties because we've been pigeonholed as, you know, leading miserable, difficult lives. I was at a conference recently. I've, I've written a novel and I went to a conference of lesbian writers and there was such an allergy to any, any book that didn't have a happy ending in the classic sense, you know, girl meets girl, girl marries girl kind of thing. And it was shocking to me. But then when I thought about it, I understood that we don't want to be seen as um, somehow negative beings. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem. <laughs> I, uh, but I agree with you. <laughs> any any exploration of, of gay men's psychological issues uh, uh, brings up responses uh, that I'm pathologizing gay men. I've heard that all of my career, all the way from that first book and, and a lot of other writing that I've done that um, discussing any problems pathologizes gay men. And during, during the epidemic, which was, you know, horrible, profound trauma, uh, the, 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 the sort of community standard was that you said, we're doing just fine. Well, no one was doing just fine in that. No, no, indeed. And, but I heard, I heard that again and again. Why are you saying this? You're pathologizing gay men. We're doing just fine. And uh, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But the response to, the, to this, both that first book, which was a very popular book among gay men, as well as the response I've heard from, from this one, is that there are a lot of people who accept the importance of self-examination and insight. And I had a, an email just this morning from a fellow in Florida. I don't know, I don't know him at all. And uh, he said that he's three chapters into the book and that it's going very slowly because as he's reading about every, every 15 minutes, he has to uh, read a paragraph or two to his partner. And then his partner wants to call up several people and read it to them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Well, that's the best kind of slow reading, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, clearly. And, and interestingly, I feel as if you're extremely careful about not pathologizing gay men. I, uh, in, in the sense that you really lay a lot of the trauma that um, you and, and I will buy uh by implication me and my you know my community of lesbians have experienced is not our doing yes uh, you know but we're still left to to grapple with it yes and it's, it gets sort of dumped in our laps and it becomes uh unfortunately the stigmatization that that, that we're essentially talking about here becomes part of the self-identity 
And, for, and that, sure. for many people that they have to deny that. And if I go to a pride parade, uh, I just judging by behavior and face and all of that, I see a lot of people who are, who have realized themselves in some way. And I see a lot of other people who haven't. And, and a great deal of it looks like compensatory behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the epidemic, uh, the, the early epidemic up to the mid to late 90s, uh, there, there was a kind of thing that went around. Uh, people had T-shirts that said uh, HIV positive and proud. Well, that can't be really <laughs> That can't be the whole story. <laughs> no, certainly not the whole story. And that people wanted respect and and uh, equitable treatment for having HIV, for being HIV positive. Um, that that I certainly understand. But I don't quite understand pride about having a very problematic infection. And but I but I I understand the reasons people are protecting themselves against the vulnerability that they feel. For sure, I recently uh, went on my choir and San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus went on a tour of the South together, and uh, the thing that stood out quite a lot, and there was a film made about it, uh, Gay Chorus Deep South. And the thing that that film has really turned out to be about, in part, is traumatization uh, by religious communities of uh, LGBTQ people. And the the film is is celebratory, beautiful, and also uh, describes that grief in a in a deep way. And I. I hadn't thought until just recently that that's maybe a somewhat revolutionary thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. it's so important because yeah. I just heard story after story throughout that tour from people who had been cast out, uh, you know, on a dime I, uh, I, from, I, 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 from everyone they knew. I hear that all the time. I, I was in New York recently. I was doing a reading from the book, and there was quite an interesting and intelligent audience there. And uh, this was in Manhattan at the Gay Center on uh, West 13th Street. And one man, at the end, we did a long question and answer sort of thing. And uh, he said, you know, things have gotten so much better. I don't you seem not to recognize that. Uh, there's so much more acceptance and gay people come out of families and they're just fine. And I said, where do you live? And, and he said, Manhattan. I said, where'd you grow up? He said, Manhattan. And I said, <laughs> uh-huh. I said, yeah, and I said, well, have you been to Staten Island lately? <laughs> it's an entirely different culture. And it's not an accepting culture. It's a highly stigmatizing culture. And in San Francisco... One, you can walk around the street and give your boyfriend a kiss on the cheek and, and not get killed. But you can't do that if you drive half an hour east of San Francisco. It would be dangerous. And as a matter of fact, we, there was a stabbing uh, in, in, during the last uh, this, uh, pride parade last week. So the problem, the problem is there. It's a significant one. Not to mention... Uh, in this current moment, there's uh, 
I'll I'll tell you I feel assaulted by the news uh, yes. repeatedly, and I and I've got a very strong <laughs> sense of self, and you know I have something to return to when when those moments happen, uh, you know in, inside myself. Uh, it certainly doesn't control my life, but it's a big impact when I hear 11 trans women have been killed in a, in one town or, you know, all of the kinds of violence that are going on. I think that does affect us. Yes. Yes. So let's go to the more personal before before we go to a break. And you could uh, maybe you can read a little bit about your own you know, um, your own loss that in part led to this book um, because it's a kind of counterpoint, isn't it, to the, all the unspoken uh, to be able to speak. Yes. The, 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 the first one I'll read here, I, I had a boyfriend for seven years and uh, it's, it's about him. His name was Rob. And, and I'll just read it now. On an atypically hot Berkeley summer night, about a year after Rob's HIV diagnosis, I was sitting up in bed, and he was sleeping motionless beside me. The the recurring thought that awoke me on most of these sleepless nights was, there must be something I can do for him, and I haven't done it yet. After a few hours of my barren rumination about that issue, the sleeping Rob still facing away from me, suddenly spoke. You know, you're the one with the big problem. So the words hovered ominously in the dark room. I'd been stunned at his being awake, perhaps even unconsciously at his being alive, and stunned by what he'd said. Why am I the one with the big problem? At that point, he rolled over to face me, because you're the one who's going to be left behind. And then he turned away again and returned to sleep. While I was still digesting his warning, Rob suddenly spoke again, this time without looking at me, almost as if he were talking to himself. In 10 years, I'll be dead. By then, the only gay people left will be those whose lives were ruined by watching the rest of us die. That just hit me in the gut when I read it. Uh, it got to read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it made me think, uh, I have three kids. The oldest one I had when I was 27, um, I, I had her by insemination with a gay man who was in a long-term relationship. And when his partner was... Um, diagnosed with HIV he the partner is still alive today but my daughter's father just um, went downhill and he ended up dying um, I, I want to say a year after that he he had had a lot lot of loss in his life and he just... Couldn't bear it is my read of it now, and stopped taking care of himself. Um, he ended up dying of a massive infection, and I was thinking about him a lot while I was reading. That in fact, some people's lives were essentially ruined, but then some people, like yourself, your life was 
altered and and affected and I wouldn't say ruined at all. No, it was not ruined, but it took me a long time to reconstruct it. Right, which is what grief does, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) Forces us to reconstruct. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's time for our first break, and... um, We'll just continue when we come back. Okay. Uh, listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to connect with my uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc., um, to sign up for my email list. And there's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. Uh, you can find Walt Odets at waltodets.com. It's O-D-E-T-S.com. Be back soon. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Walt Odets, author of Out of the Shadows. Um well, I'm I'm looking here in my notes at a at a quote uh, directly about grief that I resonated with so strongly. You said, "Only with active grieving in the aftermath of trauma do we find partially restored or new, authentically expansive, rich, humanly engaged lives." That kind of sums it up for me. <laughs> that does sum it up. Do you want to talk about that now? Or? I'd love to, yeah. Um, you know, uh, this idea that I have, I, I've, um, years after I started working with this idea that we can, that we actually transform through, through loss more than anything else, uh, through, through our difficult experiences, I came across post-traumatic growth. Um, which is that very idea, um, and it. One thing I like about that that um, 
point of view is that they say it's kind of two paths running parallel that growth doesn't take away trauma Mm -hmm. and trauma doesn't necessarily lead to growth that they're sort of two separate and concurrent um, uh, phenomenon, I guess. And your books seem to be very intent on maintaining that, that we won't won't, uh, unwrite trauma, but we can go forward. Yes, I think that's very important. The, the, uh, there's a, I know you've heard this many times, but uh, it's, uh, someone very important to you dies, and six months later, uh, friends say to you, you know, I know that this is a terrible thing for you, but don't you think it's time to move on? That, that sort of language. And that just simply isn't how it works. Uh, Rob, from about whom I read that excerpt a few minutes ago, um, well, a, a friend, a friend of mine from college, a woman I'd known for you know forty years, uh, said to me one day we were just the two of us sitting and having dinner, and she said, "You know, you love Rob the way you love your dog, completely unreservedly." Mm. And I said, "Yes, that's exactly it. I think you hit the nail on the head." With nail on the head. <laughs> yeah, and um, to have him ill like that. Um, and to have him die was, I think, perhaps the worst thing that's ever happened to me. So that, that's not going to go away. And it ought not go away. If, it, if I were able to somehow eliminate that from my emotional life, it would require shutting down my emotional life to an extent that would damage it in, in all other regards. And the, the trauma has to be incorporated and then somehow constructively reconstructed into where one moves from there. So I don't know, I could go on forever about this, but... <laughs> you it, and me both. I do go on week after week yeah. <laughs> in this subject area. But, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of those kind of sci-fi movies and books and such where um, someone goes back and changes the past. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it... It changes that one thing, but it changes everything. Um, And, you know, in my life, uh, most things come out of my wife's death. Most things I do in the world. um, Obviously, this show, the book I wrote, you know, um, I can't really picture the life that I would have had if she hadn't died. Uh, it's it's just I've just made that a part of my life, and I guess I could also say I haven't I haven't uh, expunged her. You know, I still relate to her in a different way. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you how I ex- experience what you're talking about there. The the loss of Rob, uh, as terrible as it was. And, you know, it was was a normal relationship in many ways. So we had our conflicts and differences and it wasn't a perfect or silken relationship. But in in the aftermath of his death, what occurred to me and what stayed with me now about 25 or 27 years after his death is that I was incredibly lucky to have had that relationship for seven years. Mm, yes. And I carry around the value of that relationship every day. 
and it has helped me in many other ways. So, the there, there's a and I there, it's what I just said is reminding me of something that interrupts the kind of grieving that allows that when people hold onto the grief and live within that grief without working through it and coming out the other side, a lot of it is, uh, is uh, the grief is held on to for fear of abandoning the person who's been lost, that somehow in, in order to honor him or her, that we have to hang on to the grief and live in it. And that kind of hanging on to grief without in, in examining it and working through it uh, leads to isolation and a lot of other very serious problems. And not to mention, at least from my experience, doesn't contribute to a moving, growing relationship with the person who's died. No, it doesn't. Um, which it doesn't. to me has been a real uh, unexpected blessing that that, that has continued. Uh, you know, despite I've been remarried for 22 years, more or less, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, obviously moved forward. There's a there's a great TED Talk by one of my previous guests, uh, Nora McNerney, uh, called Moving Forward. She lost her husband at 31. And um, it's that same idea. She says, we don't move on, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so if we could just get rid of one idea, it would be that there is such a thing as moving on. Yes. There's another. I think we'd agree on that. <laughs> yes, you know, absolutely. Um, and, and there's, um, another, there's another line that one hears very often, uh, which is in that aftermath that you're wallowing in, in the loss that I that again that's related to the idea of moving on and the people feel a lot of shame about that about the the, the idea that they're received as wallowing in something that yes. that they're expressing vulnerability and they're ashamed of that and all of that is really nonsense and it's destructive nonsense because it keeps people mired in the immediate aftermath and grief. There's a period where one naturally is incapacitated by the grief, and that's perfectly normal. One thing that really struck me when, uh, in especially in the first year after my wife died, is that um, you were both... Uh, Given the message, I was I was given the message, which I overcame by the time she died because I had so long uh, to interact with it. Um, but the message is, you you can't survive this. It'll be so bad. You'll just you know fall on the ground and and that'll be it for you. It's over. And then immediately after her death, the message: Why aren't you over it? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and those two just confl- conflict so completely, don't they? <laughs> yes, completely. But I've I've heard all of that. I've heard all of it. I wonder if you'd I, I wonder if you'd share since we're talking about the impact of that moment of death. Could you share the part of your book about Rob's death? Yes, it's a it's a short part that I picked out to do that. Uh, Rob died on Monday, November 30th, 1992, four days after Thanksgiving, 
and 2,600 days after we'd first met, give or take a leap year or two. He was two months and 17 days short of his 30th birthday, which followed mine by 13 days. That's an unlucky number to separate us, he had said as we blew out the candles on our joint 1988 birthday cake. Rob had died much too young, mostly unrealized, which seemed horrible, impossible. A week after his death, I still existed, but in the nightmare future of loss that Rob had predicted in the dark. I was disoriented without even the focus to feel morose. During our seven years together, our, our beings, our minds, hearts, and bodies had somehow constructed and shared a complex physical matrix that felt like a fact of the world. For me, Rob had defined the world. Without him, that world vanished as if someone had quietly switched off the sun and everything had faded gracefully away. You capture, you capture something so um, elemental there. Uh, in so many descriptions I've heard of, especially losing, I think, uh, a, an intimate other. Yes. Because, um, and I'm not, uh, I, I'm not underplaying any other loss. They can be just as profound, but I do think there's a difference because of that intricacy of interweaving physicality and uh, emotional vulnerability. Um, it's it's just, you know, I can never decide whether whether I um, think it's so different because her, she was first and my parents and many friends died after that. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a difference from having talked to many people who've lost that kind of intimate partner. It's, it's, it's really very much like losing part of yourself. It's as if half of your body had been cut off and, and, and thrown away. And uh, th- those kinds of relationships um, create a commonality of existence. I don't know quite how to put it. I'm yes. words here. But a commonality of existence that seems impossible. It would be um, it just is this half of the world was half of Earth was chopped off and floated away in the universe. It was a it's a very difficult experience. And uh, you know, a a big point of focus in your book, I guess I would say, is that we that in order to express who we truly are in the in the world to know who we truly are and learn to express it we have to explore ourselves come to know ourselves um and i think i and it sounds like you had had done some of that before i would say that when my wife died i was a little older i was 42 um i i knew who i was but then I had to kind of dispense with that notion because I had been changed. Yes. <laughs> and so I had to learn who I was all over again. Uh, and I think you're speaking to that a bit. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. Hey, people have an idea that in, that you grow up and you hit a certain age. I don't know what it is. It's 18 or 21 or something. And that then you've arrived at your adulthood and that then that's, that's what you live with. And in fact, uh, human life and all, and all of its complexity is, uh, and it's an ongoing effort. It's it's an ongoing experience. It's not something that's resolved and cemented in place that we live with forever. Now, some people do that, but their lives are limited by that. So it's uh, being alive as a human being with our complex brains and oversized cortexes. I mean, all, all of that demands dynamic lives. As we age, we have to change. Our, you know, our physical capacity, our energy, all kinds of things change with aging. And... Uh, it's dynamic. So yeah, I like that word for it for sure. I I'm finding, you know, to that point, uh, a huge amount of change going going on uh the last few years around being an older person. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd quite say old yet, although I don't object to it. <laughs> um but being older, having physical differences and and um you know, ways that I'm seen in the world too. Yes, uh, that really change my experience of myself and the and the world. Yeah, at, well, at some level. I'm 72, so I'm just old. Period. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mind it. I rather like it. Uh, I mean, the physical stuff. I'm, my my uh, GP said to me recently. I asked him about something. I had a little thing on my chest, a, a kind of little uh, pimple-like thing, and I said, "What's that about?" He said, "What'd you think? Your life was gonna, your body was gonna get better and better." yeah on on my most recent birthday you know everyone was wishing me a happy younger year um like happy 40th birthday and i said no you're not stealing any of my years i earned every single one of them (laughs) yay 65 (laughs) so there's that too (laughs) one of the significant advantages of being older is that one has much less of a future to account for. And uh, I find a relief in that. (laughs) I can relate to that, too. We we live more in immediate space and time than in projected futures. And so um, this leads me really to uh, what I'd like to talk about when we come back from our second break, because as we mentioned, your book is bookended by two such deep, relationships and you mentioned that you had lost lost uh well a few more than that even uh you'd lost matthias uh and the end of your book eloquently talks about that and so different um that description so i'd love to come back and talk about um sort of the difference in those two losses for you okay happy to do it uh, and listeners, you can go look for both of us during the break. I'm at weatheringgrief.com and get at the Good Grief Host page. And you can find Walt Odets at waltodets.com. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Walt Odets, author of Out of the Shadows, about uh, the, the impact of loss, AIDS, early trauma on gay men as they search for their own selves. And, Walt, before the break, I was saying that I really wanted to talk about uh, your relationship with Matthias and Hank um you you write a chapter about your relationships with them at the end of the book and uh we were just saying before the break older loss and younger loss some differences so i wondered if you could talk about uh him you and and him and and uh what that loss was like for you at a much later age well yeah, there are a lot of differences, I think. Um, for the relationship with Matthias had extended from the age of 17, for we were, we were the same age, from the age of 17 to the age of 67. And that uh, was very different from my experience with Rob. Rob was younger, and I... And and it had because of its because of its short length, which was seven years, it it had a an, an autonomy and intensity that that made the loss of it more dramatic. Mm-hmm. Matthias and I had matured together, and I felt a great loss when he died, but his life was not, as I said earlier about Rob, his life was not unrealized, and. He had a productive life, and the relationship felt complete in a way that my relationship with Rob had not felt complete. Mm. So 
it, it was a loss. And again, it emptied out a corner of my life. It would be like losing a wing on the house or losing an arm and a leg. But um, it was acceptable in some way. It was tolerable in some way. And I also wonder, and I wonder this for myself too, and I, and I don't think I can answer it, but I, I, I keep believing that, that loss, grief and loss are unalterably changed by having experienced such a deep loss so young. Yes, and I, I start way back. When my mother died when I was seven years old, and um, I, it's going to bother me to tell you this, but when when she died, uh, my sister and I had been away for the weekend, and we came home, and he asked us to sit on the bed in my room. I was seven, my sister nine, and um, and my father was standing in front of his knee. I, he said, "I have something that I have to tell you." which is that mommy died and my sister started screaming and ran out of the room. And I I don't think I knew quite what that meant at seven. And he looked at me and he said, that means mommy is not going to be here anymore. And I didn't cry, but I actually had an almost visual image and a feeling of just sliding down a tube as if I'd fallen into a bottomless well and it was completely silent in there. So I, that, that experience, I think, affected my life and affected my approach to an experience of relationships. And then nine years later, uh, when I was 16, my father died. And I was an orphan at that point. Mm. And I never thought of myself that way, but my aunt, my mother's sister, with whom I lived after my father's death, um, I once walked into the living room and overheard her telling her friends that I was an orphan. And I didn't know who she was talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have the language, huh? <laughs> now, as, as I walked in the room, I heard her say, he's an orphan. And I didn't realize for a while that she was talking about me. So that, that set up for me, I think, a... D- uh, two things. One is a fear of the loss of attachment to others, uh, as well as a capacity to accept it. And That's paradoxical, isn't it? Yeah, but I think I have both. I, I have a dog now that you know, I'm actually in love with the dog. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. He's <laughs> a 70-pound gray standard poodle and, you know, b- b- bright as a beam of light. And uh, he's aging, and I and I know I'm disturbed by that. He's nine years old, and and I and I can see myself pulling back from him, pretending to myself that I care less about him and need him less and feel less attachment to him, and none of it's true. But, <laughs> but you're smart enough to know it's not true, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't. And I try not to act on that. I don't, uh-huh. you know, I haven't changed our relationship. And I think partly that was partly the truth of Matthias. There's a point in the story of Matthias. It was after Rob died, as a matter of fact, because Rob became part of that gay family for six or seven years. And, um, and he, and, and I was in terrible grief. And I called Matthias and Hank and said, you have to 
fly out immediately. Uh, Rob is dying. And they did. I'm sorry I'm choking up about this. Mm-hmm. And they, they flew out. And then two days later, he did die. And Matthias was trying to comfort me. And he, he, always, he called me Wally Burger. For, <laughs> I won't explain <laughs> it right now. But he, he, said, he said, Wally Burger, you'll always have me. And I, and he said that many times. And when he said that, I would stare at him. And and I I said uh, the last time he said it, uh, I said we should be so lucky. <laughs> and and then we both started kind of crying and laughing at the same time. So we we knew that that wasn't going to go on forever. And that was many years, about twenty five or thirty years before Rob's after Rob's death. Uh, but but you de- I, I find I can't unknow that. Uh, for instance, I I am very well aware, and it affects me that the person I live with, my sweetheart, will die. Yes, I have never been able to be unaware of that. I either have I. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's more intense for me. For instance, when we first fell in love, it was extremely intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, when she was sleeping, I'd kind of see a death mask over her, you know. Uh, for about the first year, it was very intense. But I I can't say that that awareness has gone anywhere. No. It's not. still there for me, and it affects my actions in both directions. Uh like, I, I try not to say things that I would regret if she didn't come home. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, well, you've been through it. And, um, and and I don't think that can ever go away. The, the dog I was describing earlier, his name is Galileo. Um, he, he sleeps on a bed beside my bed. He's too big to let up on the bed. And, oh, darn. <laughs> yeah, it's a big bed, but it's, it, it, it pushed me off. And uh, it would, when I, if I wake up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet, I turn on a lamp so I'm sure not to step on him. And I find myself looking at him to see if he's breathing. Yeah. So uh, clearly I've got all this in mind. But I've been doing that since he was a puppy, incidentally. It's not just well, No, I understand completely. But I don't, uh, I don't regret it. No. Personally, no. I, I I like now that I'm not terrified of it because I don't have a lot of fear about it anymore. Um, since I have all these decades with it, um, it actually informs my life in some ways. Yes. Would you find that too? Yes, absolutely. Because it is it is the nature of human life that we end up dead. And one or the other of us is going to go first. And it's, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that. And I think that it helps one sort of live in the present. It helps shift values. It adds in many ways vitality to life. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people have the thought of dying. They just sort of throw in the towel and collapse while they're still alive. But um, I, I think it's in some ways a, the recognition of the, of what a lifespan is, uh, is an opportunity. And I want to say that, you know, a huge, we, we haven't really talked about the, the ways that AIDS have, which is a big part of your book, the ways that AIDS has affected 
the gay men's community in three different generations. And, but um, I, I, f- I feel there is the possibility to live with, you know, there's the negative awareness or, or kind of feudalistic thing that can happen. But there can also be, uh, to me, a kind of push to know ourselves and to have the life that's there for us to have uh, that can come out of that awareness of, of um, short time, I guess. Yes. There Do you is- find that in the gay men's community? Yeah, I, I find two things. One is I find an extraordinary number of people who are living as if it had never happened. Now, when I when I meet them or see them in therapy, I, I often see that their lives are very constricted and they are peculiarly people who live as if they had absolutely no future and are stagnant and isolated in their lives. That's one group. And the other is a group that has grown as a result of that experience. And most of my close friends are that way. They were, I would did a lot of work in HIV prevention during the epidemic. And I had a lot of people die. I had, in, in my therapy practice, I had four men die in one week. Mm. One on Monday, two on Tuesday, and another one on Wednesday. <sighs> and, uh, and probably altogether in those 15 years, had a hundred people in my practice die, but the and the p- people I worked with and the people who are my friends now, the people the people who deny all of that and pretend that, uh, that none of it happened, uh, they're inaccessible emotionally, and they, they've shrunken in a way that makes connection very very difficult. And um, but the others, we grew as a result of that epidemic. We grew as a result of having that experience. And we talk about it. We recognize that in each other. So we're not living in it. We're not, you know, I'm going to go back to that awful phrase. We're not wallowing in the trauma. (laughs) I don't even know what that means, honestly, but I know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah. You know, before we get away, I'd, I'd love to hear a little more of the book. Do you have one more excerpt you could share? Yes, I do. Um, and it's it's a it's the beginning of the aftermath of Rob's death. Beginning a few months after Rob died, I had the same dream four times. It was intense, the kind of dream that on awakening I could almost not distinguish from waking consciousness. In the dream, I was always sitting in the chair in the bedroom listening to music, and Rob appeared standing five or six feet in front of me, startled and intensely happy. I began to get out of the chair to embrace him, but he held up the palm of his hand to stop me. I'm not here like that, he said. You can't actually touch me. I was confused and then grief-stricken, and he saw it on my face. I I just wanted to make sure you're all right, he said. I'm not all right, and I shouted that back, sobbing, and then the dream ended. The first time I had the dream, I woke up sobbing. The next three times, I didn't shout back at him, and I awoke feeling joyful that I'd been able to be in the same room with him. But it would take me several years to feel I had really survived and that I wanted to. And it would take years more to figure out how to really live in my new future. 
again, I resonated. I had a long series of dreams as well, and I would I can kind of uh, catalog my recovery or re-assimilation, <laughs> my coming into newness by those dreams. Uh, it made me think of this expression that runs in my head a lot, grief knows what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you just, if you let it happen and you lean into it, it it moves. Yes. Uh, it it's not a stagnant experience. No. Even in those four dreams, you can see that it moved. It moved. Yes. Yes. Uh, became became different. Yes. Mm. So. I'm thinking about a young friend of my daughter's. He's uh, her age, maybe a year older, so maybe 27. And I just saw him in New York recently when this film I was talking about premiered. And he was in the back of the car and he was saying, I'm so glad I have Kaiser because prep is only $5 a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, prep it, for people who don't know is a is a um, something that uh, reduces the fear of contract or reduces the possibility of con- contracting AIDS. And he said, none of my friends can afford it. And so maybe that's our next. N- n- probably none of his friends can afford therapy either. <laughs> so no, how no. this how this. Uh, takes shape in that younger generation I, I want us both to look forward to um, because they've got their own things to sort out, don't they? Absolutely. It's yeah. it's, it's a different generation. The, yeah. the, the, the PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And Let's, it, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Okay. Maybe we'll talk again in the future. Thanks for being okay. here. And you. folks, you can find Walt Odets at waltodets.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Amen.